BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, the headline over at Raw Story, an article by Brad Reed, reads, Neighbors stunned as cop takes down black Amazon driver for parking the wrong way. He parked on the wrong side of the street with his car facing the wrong direction. A neighborhood in Warren, Michigan, expressed shock this week when local police took down a black Amazon driver for merely parking the wrong way on their street. Fox 2 Detroit reports the witnesses say the Amazon driver was tackled by a police officer. And they go through the whole thing. He called in help. He ended up with three cops sitting on him. Um, Pretty strange stuff. What do we do? I'm, you know, this defund the police is basically a call to do the same thing that the Republican Party has been talking about doing with Obamacare for quite some time, which is repeal and replace. Let's get to gender and racial equality in our police departments to reflect the communities. Let's have helpers for the police. You know, there's a lot of things that cops are called on to do that really don't require cops. They require things like mental health professionals. Police can be effective when they can only be effective when they're considered legitimate by their communities. And therefore, frankly, I think they should live in their communities where they work, and I think that they should have malpractice insurance. On the line with us is Julio Rivera, our old buddy, the editorial director at Reactionary Times, columnist with Newsmax, American Thinker, and townhall.com. Reactionarytimes.com is his website, and his Twitter handle is oh yeah, Y-E-A-H, oh yeah, it's Julio. Julio, welcome back. So what do you think about repeal and replace for dealing with our police problems? <laughs> Well, I mean, the last thing we need to do right now in a time of chaos and and uprising across the country is to think about defunding the police. I will say this, though. There is an issue that needs to be addressed, and I think that that's the police unions. The police unions are far too strong, and they're offering protection to bad police officers. You know, the police officer in the case of uh, George Floyd, you know, he had 18 violations. I don't understand how you could be a police officer with 18 violations and still have your job. So I think it's the strength of the police unions. I think police, just like any other job, you know, you should get job security and promoted and get raises and all that kind of stuff based on merit. And I think that that's across the board. I think that, you know, we can talk about and have the same conversation in regards to the teachers unions. I think there's too many bad teachers out there, just like there's too many bad police officers. I mean, who's educating the people in these high crime areas? I mean, we can make that argument as well, can't we, Tom? Well, teachers aren't carrying guns to begin with, number one. And number two, uh, the teachers unions have been really, really effective at advocating for 
children. More often than not, what you find are teachers unions are, are fighting for the kids in the in you know in their schools as much as they are the, their their teachers. But I'd rather not have this be a debate. I mean, you, you know, I'm wel- you're, we're welcome to you're welcome to come on and debate teachers unions with me if you want. But right now, I, I think the issue we need to be talking about is the police. And I realize you don't like yeah. unions as a conservative. I do like unions as a liberal. But I, I actually agree with you. These police unions are running as protection rackets. In some cases, they're not even incorporated as actual unions, although in most cases, apparently they are. And I think, frankly, they're out of control. But I think that that's a small reflection of a much larger problem, which is our system of policing itself. At the very least, I mean, what what is wrong with saying that police must, you know, 94% of the cops, if my recollection is correct, it's over 90%, whatever the number is, uh, of the uh, Minneapolis cops don't live in Minneapolis. You know, what's wrong with this picture? You, you know, people should go home to the neighborhoods that they police. They should know the people that they're policing, number one. Number two, they should reflect their community with regard to race at the very least and income broadly to the extent that that's possible. You're probably not going to get a lot of millionaires wanting to become cops. But, you know, you get my point. And number three, what about gender equality? 51% of our population is female. It's got to be about 3% of our cops. Your thoughts, Julio? Well, the one thing is being a cop, being a police officer is an opt-in proposition. So you can't necessarily control the demographics by race and by gender in that way. I, oh, you I can do recruiting. I agree with you that we should have police officers that are forced to live in the neighborhoods that they police. I think that that would have a great effect on minimizing police brutality because then they would know more or less the lay of the land. They would know a lot of the people um, that they may potentially be called on to have to deal with. It may, you know, break down the walls of, you know, I, I think a lot of the tension that surfaces when the police first encounter a situation, if they're familiar with the people that they're dealing with. I, I strongly agree with you on that one, Tom. Yeah, fascinating. So another one, uh, another piece of this, I, you know, I went through the list really quickly. I saw a uh, a police chief on CNN, and I'm, I, my apologies, I don't remember his name or where he was from, but this was about three days ago, and the straight up interview. It wasn't you know some kind of a you know trash cops or trash Trump or whatever interview, and the interviewer asked this police chief, you know, what's one of the biggest problems that you have as a police officer or that your police officers have, and he said that about eighty percent of the calls that we get do not require the immediate use of force or the use of force. And probably at least 50% of the calls that we get probably never would require the use of force. And so for a lot of these calls that are being handed off to us by 9-11, we're doing things that other people should be doing instead of having guys with guns doing them. You've got people who have mental health crises. You've got people who are having domestic disputes that are not, you know, where somebody's got a gun or not violence. You've got, you know, dogs running amok. You've got Amazon drivers parking the wrong way on the street. I mean, God only knows what it is. Uh, bird watchers in the park. And and he was suggesting that there should be, you know, 911 right now can only call cops and ambulances and fire uh, trucks. They should be able to call a few other things, too. And those should be integrated into the communication systems with the police and fire departments. What do you think? I, again, fully agree. But I, I, in cases of domestic violence, we don't always get an accurate story of what's actually going on. So the police, yeah, if anything one. else, to act as a diffuser of tensions that may eventually become violent. I mean, how many women become victims of violent crime 
as a result of domestic abuse. So I think that the police still should, you know, more or less that should still fall under their jurisdiction. But you're right. I mean, people that are having drug overdoses or people who are suicidal, there should be more resources. But this a blanket movement of, you know, let's defund the police. Let's remove police forces and replace it with community-based uh, alternatives. I mean, that sounds like a fairy tale to me, Tom. At the end of the day, these communities, especially a lot of the urban communities where drugs and gangs and violence is rampant, I mean, how are you going to remove the police and not have the inner cities where I don't think anybody is talking about removing them, Julio. What people are talking about is repeal and replace. Basically, it's it's you know if the if the police force is so corrupt that you get a hundred cops standing on the street uh, giving a standing ovation to a guy who just got indicted for murder or for uh, police violence, you've got a corrupt police department. You really need to just you know start over there is corruption in some police departments and i think the department of justice should step up i think, I think it's the norm a full audit a full national audit of police officers well, this is what obama called for he, he issued 59 proposals and trump set it all aside and said we're not going to do any of that no no trump I, we randomly you could read about it in uh, reactionary times trump is looking to uh install some major reforms right now to policing and he's asking the help of congress to go ahead and do so so no that's not accurate Tom. okay well i'll look forward to those julio rivera uh, reactionarytimes.com is the website oh yeah it's julio is the twitter handle julio it's interesting it's nice talking with you and we're not just screaming at each other thank you so much for dropping but yes. although screaming at each other is entertaining too thanks julio yes exactly next time you, you betcha have a great day this is the Tom Hartman Program. Interesting. I think a consensus is emerging that uh, racist and violent policing has seen its day. We'll be right back. It's that time of year where we celebrate Memorial Day. We memorialize the Americans who have died in our wars, in the Vietnam War, in the Iraq War, in the Afghanistan War, in the Gulf War, the earlier Iraq War, in the Korean War. If you add all of those wars together that I just named, the sum total of them is fewer than the number of people who have died in three months from COVID-19 virus on Donald Trump's watch. Isn't it time for us to memorialize the Americans who have died and are continuing to die at the rate of you know, well over 1,000 a day as a result of the incompetence of Donald Trump? It seems like maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's the time to add COVID-19 victims. Because, yeah, I mean, after all, Trump says we're warriors, or maybe this should be a separate holiday. But something to think about. You'll find a video about it over at TomHartman.com. Jacob in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Hey, Jacob, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, how you doing? I want to expound on, I think we had talked before, but I'm a former officer in Nashville, Tennessee. And, uh, you know, a large population of big cities. So I learned a lot about things I didn't learn growing up in a small town in Wisconsin. So what I wanted to expound on is, I think when we think about the police, right, it's always, you know, these, these visuals in the cars of serve and protect. But who are the police serving and protecting, right? This is what we need to get it uh, down to the nuts and bolts of what's occurring. It's not, um, 
you know, they, they serve the elites because otherwise, I mean, when I was in briefings to go on uh, patrol every day in Tennessee and Nashville, I worked in the southern precinct um, uh, much of my time while I was there among, among a very diverse population where there was many places you could police and make a difference. But when they tell you uh, that they want more citations and that basically they're driving you to give more citations and to basically take more money from citizens, that bias and that racism and that implicit racism you talked about, officers that they may not even think they're racist, but they're going into the, the housing projects and they're basically attacking poor people. You know, well, also, Jacob, if you're a cop and you're being and you're being incentivized or or threatened with your job, if you don't pass out enough traffic tickets, who's more likely to fight a traffic ticket, a wealthy white guy or a poor black guy? Exactly. And what I can say on that is, it's like it makes me sick to my stomach to think that I even served a country. Basically, um, growing up, I grew up on a farm. I'm a white, you know, the white kid growing up. I didn't, other than having. Uh, my father grew up in Detroit, Michigan, uh, you know, a Highland Park during the 60s, during the, you know, the riots that happened there. I learned a lot from my father about racism, the things he saw, and that, you know, in that part of the, of the country and during those days. And, you know, thinking about the stories he told me and then going into policing and seeing the things that I saw and thinking, how much has really changed? And if you want to look at people like Attorney General Barr, right, that, <laughs> excuse me, but roly-poly guy, can tell me, about, you know, that there's no there's no uh, racism, systemic racism. When he puts a uniform on and actually goes in the streets and polices, because he'd never make it. He's a clown. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that's what yeah, I mean. I get and we need to get yeah, we need to get people like that. You know, it, it benefits them to deny their systemic racism. And why is he denying it? Because, like you said, the power structure. Right. He's profiting from it. I, you know, he wouldn't be there. I'm guessing that, you know, I can't speak to or about specifically Bill Barr, but more generally, I'm guessing that a lot of white people were looking at Barack Obama pointing Eric Holder and going, oh, boy, there go the white jobs kind of thing. And that's the kind of crap that has been thrown at white people from people like the oligarchs. You know, the, I mean, this was Fred Koch's John Birch Society back in the day with, you know, impeach Earl Warren. Oh, my God, you know, the, the black people are coming for your neighborhood and your job and all this kind of crap that that was being sold to white people for years and years that that frankly is at the foundation of a lot of this a lot of the of the white racism particularly in poor communities particularly in poor white rural communities and it's got to be you know taken on head on jacob thank you for the call michael in crystal lake illinois hey michael what's on your mind yes thank you so much for taking my call i just have an idea that might help uh, the police brutality situation with the unions and that is to uh, bring the unions in even closer and have them be at least partially liable for any monetary settlements that uh, may be awarded to somebody who was abused. Yeah, I, I suggested this a couple days ago that uh, individual police and or the police unions should be the ones who pay. I mean, you look at some of these city budgets and you see that I, mean, I think it was over $100 million New York City paid out last year in settlements to people who sued because the police abused them. You know, the numbers are just mind boggling. And uh, if individual cops had to carry liability insurance the same way the doctors do, they are the two professions that literally, professionally, they can take your life or they can protect your life. 
There's pretty much nobody else. I mean, I would add to doctors and nurses, but doctors and nurses and physicians assistants and all those, that, that whole category of people, they all have to carry malpractice insurance. They have to carry liability insurance. Police officers should have to carry li liability insurance. And, and if they can't get the insurance, they shouldn't be allowed to be police officers. And then you've got a national system that doesn't require government databases and government this and government that. Although I'm not opposed to that. I think we absolutely should have that. But insurance company, when there's money on the line, they're going to figure out who's a high risk and who's a low risk, and they're going to treat them accordingly. So, you know, pretty straightforward stuff. Fran in Seattle. Hey, Fran, what's on your mind today? Hi, I've been hearing a lot about defunding the police over the last couple of days. And I wonder, it occurred to me this morning that defunding things is how Republicans take over and privatize them. Uh, maybe I misunderstand the message, the message of defunding the police. I think we should demilitarize, certainly. But uh, I wonder if we run the risk of the right wing appropriating that message and using it as a wedge to kind of privatize the police in this country, which hmm. would be very dangerous because it makes them accountable to nobody. Yeah, um, I don't. Uh, that's an interesting question, Fran, or an interesting take on it. I, I hadn't uh, considered that, but I don't think that that would be a problem because the police still have to be paid for by the city council and, uh, you know, or the town council or whatever it may be or the county. And um, so I, I think you could argue, in fact, that they've already they already operate as if they were privatized. There's, they, they operate outside the realm of direct supervision by virtue of the power that their union has and, and, and their power to, uh, you know, to do these uh, blue flu things. I mean, uh, we heard from one of the members of the Minneapolis, Minneapolis City Council that when she first proposed a couple of years ago, she first proposed um, you know, reg more, just more heavily regulating the police in Minneapolis, that suddenly the cops in in the part of town that she represented were taking uh, you know an extra half hour or hour to respond to calls in that part of town, and she was getting mm -hmm. complaints from people saying the police don't come when I call them, and it was you know their way of punishing. So to a certain extent, it's already been um, uh, privatized. I think the, the 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 really more cogent argument against using the phrase defund the police which, by the way, I've gotten mm -hmm. three emails now from Donald Trump in the last three days or from the White House in the last three days, point, you know, oh, suggesting Lord. that Democrats don't want you to have police. They want to defund the police. <laughs> the, that's the bigger problem yeah. is that the Republicans will use it. But what the hell? I mean, it's out there. It's done. It's already there. I think we need to, to embrace it and, and run with it, uh, you know, rather than being afraid, rather than tiptoeing around. Um, go all the way, just like, you know, for a long, long time, we were saying Medicare for all and everybody was saying, oh, you can't say that. That's too radical. <laughs> well, still, you know, eventually it doesn't become too radical. What do you think? Yeah, I this is tricky for me. I live in South Seattle and we have a lot of crime down here because, gosh, there's just a lot of criminals that live in my neighborhood. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, we actually had an 8000 person march over the weekend with nothing broken and no one hurt. Yeah. And yeah. I didn't see a lot of yeah, that on the it, news, but we do need police for, for certain things down here. Of course. And of we all do everywhere. I mean, we had our neighbor literally right across the street had their house broken into the other day and a bunch of electronics stolen. And they got a picture of uh -huh. the guy you know, with their, with their oh, security yeah. camera. And it's, it's circulating in the neighborhood, you know, here. And, yeah. you know, but, would that the cops had caught him. 
on the other hand, there's a, a house that's across the street from me where a few years ago there was a really nice family living there. We didn't talk to them that much, but then they were quiet and they worked on cars a lot. And all of a sudden one day there's a friggin' SWAT team in front of their house. Well, these people, as far as I know, had never caused any trouble to anybody at all. Why call yeah. it a SWAT team? That seems really, really excessive. Yeah, and I, I, I lay a lot of that blame on Reagan's 1033 program and also on the change in police television shows that happened in the 1980s, which is a whole other discussion. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. 
Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Defying Hitler by Sebastian Hafner a memoir. This is from chapter 17, about a little more than a third of the way into the book. At first, the revolution only gave the impression of being an historical event like any other, a matter for the press that might just possibly have some effect on the public mood. The Nazis celebrate January 30th as their day of revolution. They are wrong. There was no revolution on January 30th, 1933, just a change of government. Hitler became chancellor, by no means the Fuhrer of the Nazi regime, The cabinet contained only two Nazis apart from him. He swore an oath of allegiance to the Weimar Constitution. The general opinion was that it was not the Nazis who had won, but the bourgeois parties of the right who had captured, in quotes, the Nazis and held all the key positions in the government. In constitutional terms, events had taken a much more conventional, unrevolutionary course than most of what had happened during the previous six months. Outwardly, also, the day had no revolutionary aspects, unless one considers a Nazi torchlight procession through Wilhelmstrasse or a minor gunfight in the suburbs that night as signs of a revolution. For most of us outsiders, the experience of January 30, 1933, was that of reading the papers and the emotions we felt while we were doing so. The morning headline was, Hitler called to president. That produced a certain nervous, impotent irritation. Hitler had been called to the president in August and November. He had been offered the vice-chancellorship and then the chancellorship. Both times he had set impossible conditions, and both times there had been solemn declarations, never again. Each time, never again, had lasted exactly three months. Hitler's opponents in Germany at that time suffered from a compulsive urge to offer him everything he wanted, indefatigably, and at an even cheaper price, indeed to press it upon him. It's the same now with his opponents outside Germany. Again and again, this appeasement was formally renounced, and again and again, it gaily reappeared at the crucial moment. Just so today. Then, as now, one's only hope was Hitler's own unreasonableness. Would it not sooner or later exhaust the patience of his opponents? Then, as now, it became apparent that their patience knew no bounds. At midday, the headline said, Hitler makes impossible demands. We nodded, half reassured. It was only too credible. It would have gone against his nature to ask for less than too much. Perhaps the cup had once more passed from us. Hitler, the last defense against Hitler. At about five o'clock, the evening papers arrived. Cabinet of National Unity informed Hitler Reichschancellor. I don't know what the general reaction was. For about a minute, mine was completely correct. Icy horror. Certainly this had been a possibility for a long time. You had to reckon with it. Nevertheless, it was so bizarre, so incredible to read it now in black and white. Hitler, Reich's Chancellor. For a moment, I physically sensed the man's odor of blood and filth, the nauseating approach of a man-eating animal, its foul, sharp claws in my face. Then I shook the sensation off, tried to smile, started to consider, and found many reasons for reassurance. That evening, I discussed the prospects of the new government with my father. We agreed it had a good chance of doing a lot of damage, but not much chance of surviving very long. A deeply reactionary government with Hitler as its mouthpiece. Apart from this, it did not really differ much from the two governments that had succeeded Brunings. 
Even with the Nazis, it would not have a majority in the Reichstag. Of course, that could always be dissolved, but the government had a clear majority of the population against it, in particular the working class, which would probably go communist now that the Social Democrats had completely discredited themselves. One could prohibit the communists, but that would only make them more dangerous. In the meantime, the government would be likely to implement reactionary social and cultural measures with some anti-Semitic additions to please Hitler. That would not attract any of its opponents to its side. Foreign policy would probably be a matter of banging the table. There might be an attempt to rearm. That would automatically add the outside world to the 60% of the home population who were against the Hitler government. Besides, who were the people who had suddenly started voting Nazi in the last three years? Misguided ignoramuses, for the most part, victims of propaganda, a fluctuating mass that would fall apart at the first disappointment. No, all things considered, this government was not a cause for alarm. The only question was what would come after it. It was possible that they would drive the country to civil war. The communists were capable of going on the attack before a prohibition against them came into force. The next day, this turned out to be the general opinion of the intelligent press. It is curious how plausible an argument it is, even today, when we know what came next. How could things turn out so completely different? Perhaps it was just because we were all so certain that they could not do so and relied on that with far too much confidence. So we neglected to consider that it might, if worse came to worse, be necessary to prevent the disaster from happening. Through the whole of February 1933, everything that happened remained a matter for the press. In other words, it took place in an arena that would lose all reality for 99% of the population in the moment there were no newspapers. Admittedly, enough occurred in that arena. The Reichstag was dissolved, then in a flagrant breach of the Constitution, Hindenburg also dissolved the Prussian regional parliament. There were fast and furious changes of personnel in the civil service, the book defying Hitler. Welcome back, Tom Harvin here with you. So uh, Derek Sanderlin, has, uh, he's a 27-year-old uh, activist in uh, San Diego or San Jose, California, who has worked for years with the San Jose Police Department, training them about implicit bias and how to deal with, you know, the racial bias that's kind of built into the police department. And there was a uh, a protest. Police came to the protest and were uh, starting to throw tear gas and rubber bullets into the crowd. Uh, Sanderlin says, I really just couldn't watch it anymore. I just kind of made like a parallel walkover. I put my hands up. I stood in the line of fire and asked them to please not do this. Video shows Sanderlin. This is from uh, Travis Geddes over at Raw Story. Video shows Sanderlin standing about 10 to 15 feet away from police with his hands raised. He says, I stepped into the line of fire and a couple of cops said, move. I said with my hands up, I can't do that. Please don't do this. And then a cop fired at him. And he says he fired off a rubber bullet, and I realized he wasn't aiming for my chest. I was hit directly in the groin. It ruptured his testicle. Mr. Sanderlin, Derek Sanderlin, and his wife had just been married for a while, and they were talking about having kids next year. And, he may, and now his doctor says he may be sterile. Thank you, San Jose police. I mean, this, it's just, you know, it just seems to never stop. It's just, it's, it's, it's truly mind-boggling. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's up? Uh, this is, uh, I don't know if this is a moment and time, maybe it's an hour, maybe it's a day, but it's certainly not a movement. 
And one thing that you know is that nothing happens until something moves. I mean, that's kind of the basis of Einstein's theory of relativity. And you have a narrative, first of all, that is dishonest. You know, white people keep saying, well, we're awakening. What, you've been Rip Van Winkle? You've been asleep for 400 years? You weren't awakened when Emmett Till was savagely murdered or Trayvon Martin or Oscar Grant? I can go on and on and on. You weren't awakened then? It's intellectually dishonest, Tom. You, you know, you talked about the Greenwood massacre eloquently, but you failed to mention the most important part of that, and that was, and I've reminded you of this before, those people were bombed. There's only been twice in this country where civilians were bombed with aerial incendiary devices, and that was black people. So, you know, if you really get honest with this stuff, you know, the problem is the problem, and the problem is white people. You know, you've had this awakening, but just uh, not long ago, you said to me, well, Kenyatta, how do you solve it? But now you've had awakening. You say, well, we have to solve it. And yes, you do. But Kenyatta, I think you misinterpreted my intention. I was... I thought that we were talking about policing at that point in time. You have a police background. I was asking right. you for suggestions. That that doesn't mean that doesn't make me some kind of racist or some kind of idiot. I, I'm, I'm sorry I haven't lived up are. to your high I'm standards not, for a white talk show host. But Tom, you know, I'm not saying I'm not, buying that. It. I'm not saying I'm not I'm not and I'm not saying that. And God knows I wouldn't offend you. I have the greatest respect for you. You have to understand this, Tom. We me. I keep seeing this happening over and over, over and over, Tom. It happens to children. We had children bombed in church in this country, black children. That's, no black person's ever done that to white people. And I understand, I, I'm not, you're the furthest thing from a racist, Tom. I, I'm not, please, uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, uh, that, that was unnecessary. I'm simply saying this, if we're honest, Take, for instance, George, George Floyd's death. If we're honest, that was clearly murder. I'm sure that you agree with that. Your listeners agree with that. So let's just say this. Instead of all these reforms, let's just say this. If you, since black people seem to be affected by this more than other people, if you murder a black person in that blatant a fashion, then you get the death penalty. That would eliminate a whole lot of this. That's what I'm talking about. Let's, let's, let's really drill down to this. Why is lynching still to this day not a federal crime? How is that? At the moment, because of Rand Paul. <laughs> I mean, but, but well, I, you know, we both know the answer to that, that question, Kenya. It's the answer to the question of why you still have military bases named after Confederate generals. Why, why you know, it, it was only yesterday that NASCAR said no more Confederate flags. Yes. Racism yes. is part of the woof and weave of this country. It has been from the from the day one. It still is. And it's not just racism. Racism is like almost a, a softer word to describe what's right. actually white supremacy and white power in this country. And I, I call it blackism because, you know, there's a name for everything that happens to almost every group of people. There was a Holocaust with Jewish Americans or a Holocaust. Uh, there was an Armenian genocide. But when it comes to black people, it suddenly becomes racism. And the funny thing about racism is that every ethnic group, if you are black, I don't care if it's Hispanic, Chinese, Asian American, white, whatever. At the end of the day, if they get angry with you, you know what word they'll pull out of their pocket. Do I have to tell you? 
I think you if do. they're talking to a black, yeah, I do. It's the N word. They will all oh, call you the N word. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the distinction between broadly people of color and African-Americans is becoming clear to more and more, particularly white Americans, um, and perhaps to, to some Hispanic Americans. You, you, I, I don't know if you've listened, but we've had several Hispanic Americans call into this program and go, hey, wait a minute, what about us? And, right. and you know, and I'm making the point, black Americans have had it uniquely bad in the United States and do continue into this day. Kenyatta, we're hitting a break. You are Thanks the best. You are the best. Well, thank you. You too. You're YouTube listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Tom Hartman here. Did you know that the Second Amendment was written to protect the slave patrols in South Carolina and Georgia back in the day? It's in my new book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. Check it out. Thanks so much. (music) Teresa in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Teresa, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Hey, I wanted to make a point that I haven't heard very many people making or anybody yet, and that is I'm wondering if the police, and this is not to take away from, you know, the racism and all that. I mean, that's absolutely legitimate. But I'm wondering if the police, just from their mental health and hypervigilance standpoint, if they know every day they go out into the community where everyone has these weapons of war, everyone, you know, not everyone, but... They face people with guns and, and very dangerous uh, weapons. I'm wondering if that contributes to them just being real trigger-happy and hypervigilant, and um, if we would have less police killings if we had more gun control. Oh, absolutely. And, in fact, police departments, police officers, police uh, chiefs associations have been at the front of the line for years in calling for things like the assault weapons ban. The assault weapons ban that uh, Bill Clinton passed that expired during the Bush administration. I think it was passed in 95, I could be wrong, but, uh, and it expired after 10 years. Bush sought not to, didn't even try to renew it. That, that, was, that was passed with strong support by police officers across the United States. They don't talk about it. They don't talk about it on Fox News. <laughs> you know, it's no. not discussed much. But by and large, cops are right at the front of the line in saying that having, having an armed civilian, a heavily armed civilian populace, not only doesn't stop crime or reduce crime, it increases both homicides and suicides and the danger to police themselves. They're, they're absolutely clear about that. Yeah, I mean, there are some yahoos out there who are just political, but I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I I just think that we need to bring that issue out as another factor that, of course, there's just so many, so many issues, but just another factor to help solve police violence. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Thank you, Teresa. Robbie in Portland. Hey, Robbie, what's up? Hey, Tom. Yeah, I just wanted to. Oh, well, first of all, I, I mentioned this last week. It's totally confirmed. All these police officers taking a knee with uh, protesters that is staged by the police department in order for their PR. So don't don't do it. Uh, I also wanted to say that the marches, they're still going strong. People who are afraid they might not be hearing what's actually happening there. Uh, You you know, if you live in Portland, please come out. We can't have people just, uh, you know, forget about this. But during the day, we march to where the park is. 
at night is when it gets kind of, uh, uh, you know, what you see on the news, which the news loves to propel as being a violent protest, which ironically we're protesting the violence. But I had to disagree with you, Tom, because I, 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 there's some dangerous stuff you're, you're saying, which um, could be could hurt what it is we're doing out here. And it's uh, the, the debate between reform and defunding or abolishing the police departments. Reform never works. If you read any uh, activist, Angela Davis, uh, anybody from the civil rights era, reform can always be redone. Uh, that is why we are calling for completely defunding. Dema- uh, so you know, can defunding and disbanding, Robbie. I mean, the the the, the simple fact well, of the matter is, you're not going they, they to get to public support and it would be for, very- for eliminating your police. You're not going to get any kind of public support for that. That's why I'm on here and I'm trying to talk to people and telling them the difference. That's why we need to not get be happy with breadcrumbs. We need to go after the look at me. I'm not suggesting breadcrumbs. I'm talking real stuff. I, you know, this is a language thing, Robbie. When you say defund, I under, you know, I, I understand what you're saying, but uh, the vast majority of Americans have no clue, and they they are literally taking it, uh, you know, literally. And uh, anyhow, Robbie, thank you for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. So we have a new video up. It's over at TomHartman.com. Talking about language, how we use language. Language matters tremendously. And we have chosen as a society, as a culture, as media, as political leadership, etc., not to refer to people like Steve Mnuchin, who threw thousands of people out of their homes illegally during the banking crisis, as looters not to refer to uh, Rex Tillerson, whose oil company has ravaged much of the third world, literally destroying people's lives, killing people, poisoning people. Uh, We don't refer to them as looters. Uh, We don't refer to the police who go into neighborhoods and kill people, minorities, uh, particularly African-Americans. We don't refer to them as looters, stealing their lives. But when black people rise up and say, no, enough, we call them looters. There's something wrong with this. Check it out. It's at TomHartman.com. John in Minneapolis. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Yeah, um, I just wanted to talk about, uh, I heard what Jeremiah Ellison had said, one of the city council people. And no, we're not going to, you know, the the council is not getting together uh, the nine council persons that really want to do something about the police department are not, you know, just simply going to get rid of all of the police and uh, make them redundant and fire them all. Uh, but that's but, what the president told me in this email yesterday, John. Of course. He wouldn't lie to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Well, you know. He said that, you know, things. Democrats want to defund the police. And what are you right. going to do and, without police? You know, what we want in this city, anyway, I can speak for Minneapolis, I think, pretty well. I've lived here 30 years. We don't want, you know, four officers to go and murder somebody for 20 for $20, essentially. We don't see that as a as a, a very good way of using resources. We actually have a budget that is 15 percent. So that's over twice what New York City has for their policing. And they're bad enough. We've increased the amount of police that in 1960, the population was about 500,000, and we just recently got back up to that level. 
And even then, which, I mean, there was quite a bit of crime in Minneapolis, as there were in many cities, and they were very corrupt at that point. But, uh, you know, do we really need 850 officers? It, I figured it out. It works out to for the 52 square miles of the city. And if you divided it into three shifts, it's like five officers per square mile. I don't see them. I mean, if there's anything that needs to be done, let's get rid of, uh, you know, the aggressive driving. Because once a lot of people get in the car here in Minnesota, the niceness just completely evaporates and, and it's, a, it's a blood sport. And I yeah. can vouch for that, you know, being almost killed. And I would say that probably far more people are endangered by aggressive driving in Minneapolis. And the police union uh, was very much against, uh, even though the city council and other people wanted to have cameras at intersections, get tickets and to get rid of the speeders and the aggressive driving, they didn't want it because, of course, they're, they fear that they're going to be replaced. It's just carte blanche for them. They get wonderful benefits. They get to retire after 20 years, and then they can go into the uh, transit police, which we also have here. You know, it, we are mm-hmm. over-policed. It really is a fact, and we're wasting literally billions of dollars when we could use it for other resources. Linda Sassar brought that up, and, and I'm bringing it up, and so do other people. I mean, instead of having policing, why don't we have more social workers to go and take care of the mentally ill that have been thrown out on the streets, and, and nobody, you know, really does anything for them, except, you know, when the police are called, they just simply dispatch them to the next life. That happened here also. So how is that yeah. making us safer? It's just, you know, the kinds of things that are going on here are the kinds of things that we did in Iraq. And then we hire the same people to come over here and do the same, you know, to, to do it within our city. Yeah, it's the, same, what, it's the same mentality that the way you solve problems is with the iron fist. Let's acknowledge there are a, a small number of problems that might require an iron fist. But <laughs> that is not how it's being used. It's, it's absolutely not how it's being used. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Our book today is Just Another N-Word, My Life in the Black Panther Party by Field Marshal Don Cox. His life in the, um, in the Black Panther Party. This is from Chapter 5, page 47. Uh, the chapter is titled, Use What You Got to Get What You Need. Before we entered into a direct relationship with the Panthers, our group had wanted to prove our worthiness by our actions. Since that was no longer in question, contact was made and a rendezvous fixed to meet at Huey's Pad on Telegraph Avenue in Oakland. I don't remember much about that first gathering, other than meeting David Hilliard, the Panther Party's chief of staff, for the first time. The only thing that stands out in my memory is a question from Huey as we were sipping coffee. He asked if I didn't think it better to be properly equipped before going into action. 
He suggested it was best to first rip off the necessary funds to get everything we needed in advance of launching a major effort. I had practically memorized his, his essay, The Correct Handling of a Revolution, in which he spoke of teaching by example. And so I blurted out the first thing that came to mind, which was, use what you got to get what you need. After a long, hot summer of 1967, with the rebellions in Newark, Detroit, and elsewhere, we felt that our preparations had, at least, put us on the same level as the rest of the country, and that the revolution would not pass us by. Our San Francisco group started attending and participating in any and all functions relevant to black people. And we tried to get to know everyone in our area associated with the struggle. We also continued our community meetings. News of the death of Che Guevara in October of that year had us walking around in a stupor for a while, and although it came as a severe blow to the international struggle for freedom and justice of all people, we were proud to be among those who had responded to his battle cry and had picked up the fallen arms. Huey asked if we would conduct a meeting on Hunter's Point for him. He was supposed to go, but something had come up and he couldn't make it. We were honored that he thought enough of us to ask, and we were more than enthusiastic to do whatever he wanted. It was at that meeting that we had a new surprising experience. We met our first resistance in the form of Adam Rogers. He was supposed to have been the biggest, baddest N-word on Hunter's Point, but when we encountered him, he came across like an Uncle Tom. He seemed to be impressed with our firearms demonstration, but he was violently against the idea of black people arming themselves for self-defense. He was convinced that would increase repression, even though history proved him wrong. When we examined the history of repression of black people, the only time there was significant decline in police violence and murders perpetrated against blacks was precisely the period when blacks were organized and had access to guns. Given the wave of terror and violence against blacks that continues to sweep the country, I truly believe there is a lesson to be learned from that fact. Rogers was one of the wounded in the Hunter's Point Rebellion of the year before, and a photograph of him had been used by the news media to illustrate articles on the riots that broke out following the killing of a black teenager by police that September. Because of that, we were even more surprised by his reaction. It was not until later that we discovered that the administration of San Francisco Mayor Joseph Alito had sent in money after the rebellion and had bought off the so-called bad N-words. The same technique was used from coast to coast. Despite Rogers, most everyone seemed to like what we had to say and really related to the firearms demonstration. Several people wanted to take courses in handling weapons, and so I fixed a rendezvous for the following Saturday at the parking lot of the abandoned shopping center right on top of Hunter's Point. The next day I arrived at the point at 7 in the morning in order to get set up before people began to gather. There wasn't going to be any target practice, but I would be firing a few shots in the air by way of demonstration. I knew that would pose no problem as far as the police were concerned. Due to their racism, whenever they heard shots on the point, they generally looked the other way. Once, during a dispute between two gangs, shooting broke out, and instead of police coming in to break it up, they sealed off the area and let them shoot it out. The gun battle lasted 24 hours, and the police didn't return until the next day. At around 8 o'clock, I saw David Hilliard's car driving up, which I found surprising because we had only seen each other a couple of times before. As the car approached, I recognized Emery Douglas and George Murray. Everyone had strange looks on their faces that made it clear that something was wrong. Damn, Huey had been shot and captured. He had shown up at David's, wounded and bleeding heavily. There was real concern for his life, so David drove him to the hospital and left him on the steps, then drove straight to San Francisco to find me. He said Huey had asked him to ask me to help out in the aftermath, specifically dealing with the passenger who had been in Huey's car at the time of the shootout, Officer John Frey of the Oakland Police, who had been killed. There was also the problem of the guns Huey had stockpiled. I'll never understand why David didn't just bring the guns with him, but he hadn't and I was obliged to go back into the area, get everything, and get back out safely. 
That might sound easy, but the shootout had occurred less than three hours before, and there was one policeman dead and one seriously wounded, so it was hot over in Oakland, to say the least. There was no time to go by the house and unload the guns I had on hand for the training, so I followed David back to Oakland with a trunk full of weapons. David took me into the backyard of a house that had a lot of weeds and a stack of old lumber in which he had stashed the gun. In his state of excitement, he couldn't remember exactly where the pistol was, and while we were looking, an elderly black woman came out of the house next door and asked what we were doing. David kept searching and didn't look up. She then said, if you don't come out of there, I'm going to call the police. I began to panic and told David to say something to the woman. When he rose up, she recognized him and calmed down. This was David's house and she was his neighbor. On the one hand, I was relieved, but on the other, if the police were looking for the passenger who'd been with Huey, it was certain they wouldn't miss David's house, as both were known Panthers. Finally, he found the gun, and it continues from there. Just another N-word, My Life in the Black Panther Party by Field Marshal Don Cox. Uh, Mike in Lamita, California. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Just called up to answer a gentleman's question from the Friday show. Uh, he was asking whether once the police in uh, Minneapolis discovered that George Floyd was without a pulse, shouldn't that have been instantly become a crime scene and cord and tape being put up and all that? And actually quite the opposite. Uh, once they found out that he had no pulse, they were obligated to start uh, chest compressions to CPR, CPR yeah. protocol. Um, yeah. Which the which the medics did. I mean, when they finally did the autopsy, the second autopsy, they found that actually the CPR had been so aggressive it had broken one of his ribs. Still didn't work, though. Yeah, that's dead. fairly typical with chest compressions. But apparently yeah. the uh, bystanders and the cops all had been trained in CPR because one of the bystanders was saying after five minutes that he was unconscious and uh, one of the rookies was asking Chauvin a couple of times whether they sh shouldn't be rolled over. And mm -hmm. two minutes after the apparently loss of consciousness, Chauvin was still kneeling on his neck, which is right. not a protocol for police no, or, it was an attempt to murder. or anybody. This well, it certainly was uh, some form of a homicide. That's to be, uh, you know, just obvious on its face. Um, yep. And there, there's something uh, interestingly similar about uh, Jesus of Nazareth and George Floyd, and that the, as I see it, the primary, or at least major factor in both their deaths was asphyxia. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Being crucified does that to you. Right. Yeah, yeah. Although, you know, it's not a metaphor that, or an analogy, rather, that we need to be using right now. But, yeah, I get your point. Mike, thank you. Paula in Tacoma, Washington. Hey, Paula, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up? Hi, Tom. I just want it to be known that there's a significant amount of people out there who are still operating under the misconception that they cannot vote because they have been convicted of a crime in the past. Um, if you are not on current felony probation or felony parole, you may register to vote as soon as you're discharged. It's recently come to my you're attention. You're talking about the law in the state of Washington. It varies from state uh, to state. It does vary from state to state, but in my experience, in my home state of California, I was not given any problems about registering to vote as soon as I was discharged from 
my parole and probation. And it mm-hmm. occurred to me that there are a lot of people operating out there who think that they can no longer vote forever once they've been convicted of a crime. Mm-hmm. And that's just not the case. And the other thing I want to mention real quick is jails. These um, sheriff's departments often train their deputies in the jails. And my own personal experience uh, demonstrated that those folks are encouraged and expected to treat these inmates with the utmost ridicule, humiliation, and disrespect on an all-day, everyday basis. And I believe that that is where a lot of police um, get their uh, terrible attitudes that they have towards people. Yeah. I think also that, you know, the people who, who were the bullies in our, you know, the, that, we, that we all had to put up with as kids, they're the ones who end up, you know, uh, gravitating toward police work. And, uh, you know, another Absolutely. big tragedy. Got it, Paula. Yeah. Paula, thank you for the call. Uh, and well said. Uh, people, you know, check, check out whether you can vote. And if, you, if you're not registered, register. James in Los Angeles. Hey, James, what's up? Oh, Tom, I love your program. And uh, there is a, a working police department that should be a model for reforming all of these uh, oppressive police departments. And Palo Alto Police Department, uh, during the Watts riots in L.A., it was uh, it was created to defuse any upset in the black community. Palo Alto is, is a has a, a large uh, black community, and so they changed uh, police officers to peace officers, put them in three-piece suits, and uh, got rid of the separation between detectives and patrolmen so these uh, peace officers could take a case from beginning to end. And if they can they can make a decision on the spot whether or not to write a ticket or let them go with a warning or anything like that, which police officers can't do because they have to arrest if there's any uh, grounds for it. They can't let somebody well, go with a to. warning. There, there is yeah. some discretion, uh, generally speaking. But James, I'll have to. You know, I, I can't speak to it. I'm, I'm not familiar with that. But you've given me my uh, Duck Duck Go assignment for the afternoon. Thank you very much, Rhoda in uh, Portland, Michigan. Hey, Rhoda, what's up? Hi, Tom. Yeah. I am a retired English teacher, and I do recognize the problem with words defund and reform. And you're right. Mm-hmm. Language matters. Words do matter. That's the whole thing behind campaigns, generally. So what I'm saying is that defund and reform have such negative connotations that I'm suggesting using the word transference because the denotation is precise and positive, as in the sentence. Rhoda, what do you think of this? The, the, the Republicans, when they were uh, deciding to try to prevent people, Americans, from having access to high-quality, low-cost health care, or health insurance anyway, Obamacare specifically, um, came up with this mantra of repeal and replace. Um, those are both words that are, you know, they're not $10 words. They're, they're you know, any, any American uh, would understand them. They're words that the Republican Party has focus-grouped 
you know, Frank Luntz and company found out that the, this this phrase repeal and re- replace is very viewed very positively by Americans generally. And they're applying that to health insurance. I mean, they're still literally still saying this as they're suing at the Supreme Court to end Obamacare. They're still saying, yeah, we're going to repeal it and replace it. Why not use that phrase with regard to police? Because people are already associated with something else. We have a guy here once running for Senate for mm-hmm. the Republicans. His name, I forgot his name, James something. And mm-hmm. he's up with that word. People are so sick and tired of it. They just turn off their TV when he comes up. I believe that Obamacare should be repealed and replaced. So the black guy, mm-hmm. mind you. That is a mixed marriage. Yeah. But um, yeah. really, words do matter. So I, I'm thinking they should use the word, there will be, as in the sentence, there will be a transference of funds from precincts to local agencies in the community to help citizens. Yeah. Have a sentence yeah. like there will be a transfer. And I just heard a guy was actually saying, and I was waiting to speak to you, mm-hmm. when he was making use of the word transfer. It's short. And remember, when they're using words for effect, it has to be short. Repeal. Two syllables. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Replaced. Yep. No, I, I, I get it. And, and R-R. You know, we got to get English right. teachers into the campaign for the Democrats because they don't have a person who's doing things like that. They really don't. They need to really get the slogans and use them. I you agree. know, transfer. I agree. Rhoda, thank you. Nick in Jersey City, New Jersey, says you disagree with me here. Nick, what's up? Yeah, I wanted to talk about what some of my fellow conservatives are referring to, and uh, I wanted to hear what your response was to it in regards to police discrimination against African-Americans and white people. The Washington Post came out with a study two days ago, I believe, and they went over the statistics and of the 10 million arrests in 2019 between police and Americans, there were 1,004 deaths in terms of unarmed people. It was actually a harder percentage of whites were killed. It was 19 whites, 5.1%. And it was nine. 74% of America is white, Nick. How does that surprise you? Well, it's a, it's a disproportionate number. It's, it's per capita. And I mean, this isn't even, let's just assume for a second that the crime statistics were right. equal, which they're not. Nick, is this, is this a contortionist attempt on your part to suggest that there's no racism in policing in America? Is that where you're going? No, I don't think. No, no, no. Nobody's saying that. What we're saying is that. So you're acknowledging that there's racism in policing in the United States? On an individual level, sure. But systemically, it doesn't seem so. The statistics from The Washington Post don't bear that out. Uh, Actually, I'm not sure the, you know, I don't have the article in front of me that you're reading, and I don't know if you're cherry picking it. But no, no, no. I would right suggest I'll, I'll that you, you have link. a conversation with pretty much any person who has grown up black in America and ask them what their experience with police has been. It is a very different experience According than to- white people have. You, Nick, you don't have to, when you wake up in the morning and you're thinking about going out of your house, you don't have to wonder how the color of your skin is going to affect you if you get pulled Are over by police. Are you kidding me? I'm, I'm a white guy in Jersey City. That is City. not true of black Are people. You kidding? I'm a white guy in Jersey City. Of course I have to think about that. No, you don't. No, you don't. Uh, yeah, I've do. been a white guy I, I my whole entire walk, life. And I've lived in, in good places. I've lived in rough places. I've lived in places where I disagree with I cannot walk through neighborhoods because of the color of my skin. I cannot walk in, through certain neighborhoods because of the color of my skin in my own neighborhood. And that's because of the institutions that people who look like you and me have set up over the last 400 years. So they attack people based upon, I mean, do you know the crime statistics in the country? 
Black men, 18 This is not about statistics. About this is about racism. This is, this is right, about right, right. So, the, reali- so, the lived reality of black people in America. Please give me the name okay. of the last three white Americans who died at the hands of police saying, I can't breathe. Nobody knows because it's not promoted. <laughs> it's not in the news. Right. Nobody. Well, that's not hey, news. you know, if there was if there was police violence, you know, systemic police violence against white people, don't you think Sean Hannity would be yelling about it on TV? No, it's it's. it's or is he just fine with police killing white people? It just gets brushed under the rug. Listen. No, it doesn't get brushed under the rug. It establishing yes, vaccine. there is there is white violence against white people, and many white people have been on the receiving end of it. I have, and in fact, I would say even that was highly political because that was back in the seventies, and that had to do with anti-war demonstrations. But, but Nick, you're you know you're desperately nine, trying nine to justify something here that ain't real. I'm sorry. It just you know, white people are not the victims. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.